when you look at cravings, I think there are a lot of things that people think about, you know, especially from a personal perspective that, you know, if you're dieting every once in a while, you just hit this stumbling block. And, and I certainly think that most cravings or more than not, if we act upon them in ways that don't align with our goals, it typically does resort to some kind of binging. And then it's that, that binge eating behavior that makes us think, okay, maybe this was a quote trigger food and maybe I have to eliminate it completely. And we get into these, these uh, pockets of binge and, sh- or, or, you know, binge and then shame and guilt and then binge and shame and guilt and more restriction. And we go back and forth. So I wanted to find a study uh, to present that, that a starts with the physiology, you know, I, I think all of these kind of things have their, their greatest, deepest roots in the neurochemistry and the biology that, that, you know, just create those kind of behaviors. Because then once we know that, we can learn how to deal with it. So in uh, conjunction with uh, an axiom I constantly use, which is, um, you know, every, everything just kind of starts at that level. We have to understand the biology. And if you can name something, you'll know I say this all the time. If you can name something, if you can categorize it, put a label on it, and then you kind of store all of this information behind that category or that name, now it's not a mysterious process. And going back to the research re- review on the moralization of decision-making, I-, I think that's that next step. So first is the physiology and the biology of what's happening inside of our body that then we have to contend with emotionally and mentally and intellectually. So we're going to go through that physiology today, and then I'll probably touch on some of those behavioral mechanisms, but that may be where we leave off and, and head into our next time. So here's the study that I looked at, uh, not too old, 2009, Journal of Nutrition. Sugar and fat binging have noticeable differences in addictive-like behavior. And initially, that's kind of what I wanted to extrapolate from the study. And that's why I titled my post, and and literally the, the name of this, you know, cravings, fat versus sugar, sugar versus fat. And that's actually not that big of the studies. It's not the most important thing. So I will get to that toward the end, but I think there are some other things that we need to think of first. Um, So I want to just, I have a lot of quotes from this study because this is not a massive epidemiological study where you just, you know, they, they have so much data to review and so forth. This really is almost very narrative driven. And these researchers, I would not call this a meta analysis, because they they actually did some studies here, but they had an incredible amount of citations and relied heavily on other research that has been done because a real hypothesis is, as I said, that, that some foods affect the brain and neurochemistry and therefore behavior more than other foods. So I think you guys will, will see a lot of aha moments in here and, and some of this stuff you will know just from your own experience but ingestion of different nutrients such as fats and sugars normally produce different effects in physiology, uh, the brain and behavior. The concept of food addiction, and this is a huge part of it, is described and reviewed um, you know, from different perspectives. Now, the question we have today is how do these foods cause addiction? Or, or do they actually cause addiction? You know, is it, are there true behavioral traits that you could say, you know, hey, that's exactly what happens when somebody gets addicted to heroin or something like that. 
So uh, fat and sugar share certain neural pathways for reinforcement of behavior, including the mesolimbic dopamine system. And, and there are a lot of brain structures. You, you've heard dopamine used a lot probably in recent years, just in you know any, any different uh, headline you might read with, with health and mo motivation. But there are a lot of structures in the brain that, that you know, are affected by that whole dopamine system. Uh, when these nutrients, meaning the fats and the sugars, are consumed in the form of binges, they can release excessive dopamine, which then causes compensatory changes in those areas comparable to the effects of drug and abuse. So one of the things we're going to look at is, is how much, like if I really eat sugar, does it cause that? Remember last week when we were talking about artificial sweeteners, some of the questions that came up afterwards were very dose specific. Okay. If, if this causes gut microbiome change, or this can cause, if you remember, th this is very similar because the same dopamine system is what we talked about last week. When you can taste something that's sweet, even though there are no calories there, it's the taste of it that then flips that dopamine system where uh, in both an interesting kind of a, a pro and a con, when you taste it, your body gets this massive craving for more that you're going to see that come up this week. But also in terms of that dopamine system, when you get those actual calories, it typically sates you. So, so the whole leptin and ghrelin, you know, axis uh, reinforce the fact that you're now getting calories. You tasted it. So it peaked the cravings for more. If you've ever like, you know, given your dog a little taste of something uh, and then they just go crazy because they want more, 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 you know, that's that, that response from the taste in that dopamine system. But eventually when you get full enough that, that, uh, you know, dopamine system, the, uh, the nucleus accumbens and so forth gives you different signals to be sated. And so you stop eating, but if you get into addictive behaviors, if there's something that is chemically mediated, a change in the dopamine system, then you can keep having ongoing cravings, even when that stimulus is no longer there. Again, that's how we get addicted to things. So you guys have heard all kinds of language like, you know, sugar addiction. You've probably, you know, you've probably thrown it around just half joking in the fact that, you know, gosh, I, I love that so much. I'm addicted to it. But also in terms of health and nutrition, there have been a lot of people talking about that in a very serious way. And some studies like this have really brought it to the forefront in that there really are changes that, uh, that are related to, to our behavior and their, their actual brain changes. So let me read this. I would, whenever, I, whenever you guys see a big block of this, don't necessarily just start reading because I'll, I'll kind of walk you through it. The DSM defines binge eating as a series of recurrent binge episodes in which each episode is defined as eating a larger amount of food than normal during a short period of time, usually within a two-hour period. Binge eating episodes are associated with three or more of the following, eating until feeling uncomfortably full, eating large amounts of food when not even physically hungry, eating more rapidly than normal, eating alone because one is embarrassed of how he or she is eating, and then feeling disgusted, depressed, or guilty or marked distress and anxiety around binge eating. So anybody been there, done that any, any time in your life? Just, you know, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've been pretty open about a couple of my contest preps where I was just trying too hard, trying to accomplish too much fat loss in a short period of time. And, and 
I, I went from being somebody who necessarily did not struggle with things like this to really just being sucked down into a pit of repetitive binging. And then as soon as you're, you know, in a different stimuli, you know, that can change. But if you recall last week, just again, I'm going to kind of bounce back and forth because there are some interesting correlations with this whole dopamine system. One of the things with aspartame or just artificial sweeteners, because they are so sweet, you're going to see some, some direct parallels to this. And if you recall, uh, almost instantly from the time you start ingesting a certain amount of artificial sweetener and you're getting those gut microbiome changes, and you're probably also getting some changes in the neurochemistry with dopamine, then you also start seeing changes in blood clearing. Remember, we talked about hormones that were, you know, regarding glucose disposal and so forth, almost creating uh, a pre-diabetic state, all with this supplement or, or this, this, this food additive, a sweetener, uh, that you would think it's just innocuous. There are no calories here. It's just, it's supposed to be faking my body out in a good way because it, it just mimics sugar, but there are no calories. And yet there were profound systemic bodily changes. So when we consume sugar, the, the good part of last week's talk is I said, at least when you have that positive energy balance going up, even though you have that sweet taste, that positive energy balance going up is what makes you sated. And then you you know, you stop consuming it. But if you go further, we're going to see some of the chronic effects. So uh, first of all, one of the things that we have to discuss is, you know, what would people binge on? And, you know, the title gives it away talking about fats and sugars, but we're typically going to binge on, on high energy, rich foods. You, you know, they even made the joke as I've often done in, in podcasts that, you know, people don't binge on broccoli. We don't binge on, you know, oh gosh, I had way too many cans of tuna fish today. We don't binge on things that just don't give us that massive dopaminergic surge of feeling great, that, that sense of euphoria that you get from sugar or cocaine or heroin or something like that. Um, so I think everybody should just kind of intuitively know through your own experiences, sugar is, is kind of the catalyst. Uh, I, I will just kind of let the cat out of the bag and say that that fat doesn't have nearly the same impact, but it does play a role. So binge eating is a multifaceted behavior with emotional and cultural components that are difficult to reproduce with animal models, which is a, which is a great thing. This particular study was an animal study because they weren't necessarily interested in all of those cultural behavioral type components that could feed into this. They just wanted to see the physical response. We're going to give these rats that have 94% the exact same DNA as humans, um, you know, this particular, um, you know, thing. And then we're going to, we're going to construct the study in a way that we're, we're comparing control groups to, to, you know, a baseline group. And we're going to see what happens, but they're, they're much more able to test the, the physical response. Okay. So, uh, let me, let me skip through this just a little bit here. Um, so what they wanted to do was set up a, a system where they would, they would have rats uh, undergo a 12-hour fast, and they would give them their normal food, which you'll see annotated in, in most nutrition literature as chow, and then uh, you know also an interval, so 12-hour fast, and they would give them certain amounts of food at different times, and then they would also have that chow with a high 
sucrose, so sugar component. So their chow mixed in with sugar. So they just, it's just a lot sweeter than normal. And then they'd also had a group where it was ad libitum eating, which is just instead of the 12 hour fast, and then they gave them different meals and watched them eat different meals. But one group, they just had that food out and they could eat as much as they wanted. And, and they wanted to see exactly what would happen. Uh, interestingly, even with a little bit of time. So here, here's what happened when they just give these people, these people, these rats, um, you know, the, the sucrose intake. So, so here's, the, here's the chow with sugar in it. Are they going to eat more? And you can see that this is even in days. So day one, all the way to day 28. And in the presence of sugar, like that's what they were going for. These rats would be like, well, screw that other stuff, you know, that Purina rat food that I get every day. This stuff tastes way better. So all the rats just gradually learned to eat more, 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 more sugar. Like they would go to that. They had the opportunity to eat their regular chow or they could choose the chow with, with the sugar. And so this is one of those duh moments, right? Like duh, like who's not going to pick the, the one that's sweeter. So, so that went along with what we, I would almost call this kind of a baseline. This is what you'd expect. You know, people are going to start increasing sugar in, intake when it's present. But here's what's really interesting. The amount of total food really didn't change. There was this initial spike. So first of all, it's really interesting to see day one. If you scoot all the way to the left, look at days one through three, uh, everybody's food intake, no matter what group you were in, every, every, everybody started eating more because it's like, okay, you guys made me go through this 12 hour fast. So boom, I'm gonna go have a big meal. But then just almost like intermittent feeding, they, you know, they kind of get used to it. And the food intake stayed a little bit higher, but it didn't necessarily grow exponentially or cumulatively over time. Um, you know, interestingly, even here, if you look at the, so, so the intermittent sugar you, you, or the, the sugar with chow eaten intermittently, look, look how straight that line is across there. After a while, and this is going to go back to our artificial sweetener talk here in a second, they just decided, you know, it's, it's good. I'm getting what I need. And they just, even though they were eating a higher percent of their food from sugar, they adjusted their intake and, and they ended up just kind of eating, you know, the, the same. Um, let me, let me scoot, scoot over here to this next one. So total calorie intake, this is where you overlay those three things together and whether they were eating more of the, the one with sugar, which if it was ad libitum, it was chow plus sugar, that's when they were eating the most amount of food, but overall calorically, it really didn't change. And I think this is a little bit where the animal study diverges from a human study. Because, and again, I, this, I'm not going to quote research on this. This may be something we get into in the next couple of weeks. I think by our population, knowing that 40 years ago, 5% of our population was overweight, and now 70% is overweight, I think you could look at our society now as having introduced an ad libitum social effect of high sugar, high fat foods. So now as a 330 million population base in the US, you know, you can virtually get any amount of sugar or fat that you want, right? 
You can go to the gas station, convenience store, anywhere you want, break rooms across America. Uh, there's always tons of high sugar, high fat foods. But with rats, again, taking out the cultural impact and maybe even those, those other things I'm describing and just saying, okay, you've got an option. Here's your regular food. Here's your regular food with sugar. They're like, well, we'll definitely prefer the one with sugar, but they didn't necessarily eat a ton more. So interesting, interesting point. Uh, here's, here's where I'm going to bring fat into the conversation. Animals will also binge on pure fat, and they also even studied things like vegetable fat, uh, trans fats, animal fats, things like that. And, and the, the animal study that they did or the model they used, there didn't seem to be that much of a difference. If there's extra fat in the chow, you know, maybe just for, for palatability, mouthfeel, you know, just like, you know, if you're, if you're not a vegan, you probably feel like uh, a prime rib tastes better than a dried chicken breast, right? Like there's, there's something to that, that taste as well and that texture. Uh, but at the same time, once they, they kind of got the taste of that, it wasn't something that, that went on long-term. And so physiologically, their assumption was, and you'll see it bears out here in the study, that there's just not the same kind of neurochemical brain change. There, there's not this dopaminergic drive to continue the cravings for fat. It's like, oh, here's a fatty meal that tastes good. I'll eat more of it, but you don't necessarily want to binge on that. Uh, you know, again, I don't, I don't know a lot of clients over the years who have said, man, Joe, I just, once I got that first egg yolk, I couldn't stop. And I ate two dozen eggs or, you know, I, I had, I had that four ounces of sirloin with my salad and a cup of rice. And I just, could, I, you know, I just ate 16 more ounces of steak. I mean, we're, we're typically gonna, like this study showed, go for that food if it's there, but it's not something that's going to create a binge type disorder, but here's what happens. And, and you're going to, I'm, I'm going to love talking about this. The combination of sweet and fat together, because they also did this as part of the study, um, activates multiple taste receptors, uh, post-ingestive signals, neuropeptide systems, all of that, uh, especially in the form of things like cookies, right? Where you have high sugar and high fats. And, and these have been shown to be the way that you really get somebody to gain weight. So give somebody high sugar like those rats and, and it affects the dopamine in a way that that positive energy balance gives you enough depression in your hunger signals that you're probably going to stop. But with that high sugar and perhaps the taste or the mouthfeel of the fat, it tends to accelerate because again, the, the, it, it, you bring in different taste receptors. Now your brain is getting more signals from more directions that that's just not a sweet food that tastes good. That is an amazing food. Like that is there, there again, you know, if you just go to something sweet, you could say, well, blueberries are sweet or, you know, the jam I put on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, that's sweet. But in those baked type products where you have a high, high fat and high sugar, you get the multi-sensory pinging for cravings. And then it's truly the fat intake that adds the calories that that's what adds the weight gain. Because on sugar alone, we wouldn't typically have that same response. Uh, one other interesting point here, uh, by week three of access, 
the binging behavior is most pronounced. And at this point, these rats were consuming uh, 58% of their daily energy intake during that two hour period. So they're almost going through that uh, intermittent fasting window of 12 hours. And then they would have almost 60% of their food in that next meal as almost a little binge. And then that kind of sated them, you know, for a while, if their calories were going to truly come back down. So here's where this comes out in terms of just showing clinically the actual weight gain. So again, unlimited amount of regular food, just chow after that 12 hour fast. And the, the, the rats gain just a little bit. It's like, you know, a little, little, little bump in there because they're not used to that hunger. They eat a little bit more, but then they stabilize. Then you add the, the unlimited, you know, sweet and fat. Uh, then you restrict a little bit and now you're only giving them that, that sweet and fat combination Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you'll see now it kind of peaks because it's like, now they're kind of looking for it. They're not getting it. So the next time they see it, you know, that they're a little bit more excited. And then, uh, you know, all the way to just after the, after the 12 hour fast, you know, the, uh, getting the daily sweet and fat was even higher. So it, it almost looks like if you have somebody, this, this kind of ties back into flexible dieting. And I think you'll recognize this from other studies. If you allow yourself certain foods, psychologically and physically, if you tell yourself mentally and emotionally, there is no food off the table. I am not in a self-imposed way, completely restricted from me eating anything in the world. I can eat anything. That important tenant of flexible dieting is critical. And you see it right here, even in rats, given the, the, the food options right there, as long as they're constantly there, they don't feel a sense of scarcity or restrictedness. They didn't gain that much weight, but you start restricting their food intake. And then you only give this to them occasionally. And guess what? You cause binge eating disorder. You get those animals, these rats to start seeking it out and, and, and feeling these cravings differently and acting on these cravings differently. So here, here's how it really correlates to the, the kind of opiate addiction model. Uh, recent clinical studies suggest that carbohydrates can have abuse potential for carbohydrate cravers. Likewise, craving-related changes in response to palatable foods have been identified using brain imaging techniques. And these changes are similar to those seen during drug cravings like heroin. So coming back to dopamine, I'm going to go through, and I don't think it's important at all for you guys to know these things, but I'm going to cover like some of the structures and, and why this is a perfect overlay with, with drug addiction. So first of all, just on the, on the psych side, if you say, okay, here's, here's what people who display food addictions have in common with people who have uh, an, an actual drug addiction, uh, you even see opiate-like withdrawal from some of these rats. Like they would actually start shaking. Um, you know, just, just in the narrative of the study, it was, it was interesting seeing some of these details, but they, they literally start behaving as, as you get these rats slowly addicted to binging on sugar, uh, really looked like, like all the classical symptoms of somebody who is addicted to a, a narcotic. But on the neurological signs, and I know this is super small, I had to minimize it to get it all on this graphic. Uh, you know, things like I mentioned the nucleus uh, accumbens, 
they're, you know, in the striatum itself. There are all these structures. Um, what is that one? The, uh, the ventral tegmental, I think, um, area. All of these things are the tissue structures of the, the mesolimbic dopamine system. So all of this verbiage here, just to say that the very chemical dopamine and its precursors acts on certain receptors in your brain, just like everything, you know, you know, insulin, you, you know, for example, there are like five or so, I think there are five uh, different body fat receptors for body fat cells. So, so those, so body fat cells are unlocked by, by certain hormones and peptides. So if we're going to release body fat into the bloodstream to be used as energy, anytime you've ever lost body fat, it's because of these interactions. There, there are cell or tissue receptors for certain signal mediators like hormones. And that's how you get things to happen. That's how chemistry is, is produced in the body, you know, chemical reactions. So here's, here's the bottom line. There are tissue level, cellular level changes in the brain when we eat sugar, especially in binging amounts a small amount. I'm going to go back to something I started saying a couple of minutes ago in those rats that had daily access, especially ad libitum, meaning it's just there, like here's your 12 hour fast, or maybe, and they had one group that was not even fasting. And those were the groups that, that had no problem with binge eating the group that had access to sugar 24 seven, they were never restricted, never hungry and yet they could access those calories. They just didn't create the same binging episodes as the ones that were both restricted and then had intermittent access. So they were hungry and then they, they you know, just made the decision. They could, could only make the decision once in a while to eat the sugar. So think how that plays into your normal dietary habits. You're dieting, you're just crushing it you know, whether you have some kind of performance goal or, or event or not, you're just doing it for your health and you decide, you know, I'm just not going to eat sugar because sugar is bad, bad, bad. And so in your mind, psychologically, you've already got that, that mantra playing. And then every once in a while though, there it is. Coworker brings in donuts. It's your child's birthday. There's birthday cake. Now, like the rats, you've been restricted now you have access to it if you want it. What's going to make you not engage in a binge? Well, a couple things. If you have set yourself up to cyclically binge, if you constantly start driving sugar in these high amounts in your body, these, these tissue and cellular level changes will make you start craving it more. You will start looking for it. Your will will resolve or, or dissolve. You'll, you'll just find yourself giving in more because you've given yourself that way, way harder backdrop of physical craving. You're, you're physically craving those things. Uh, just like we talked about last week where somebody who is very sensitive to artificial sweeteners and it is driving down your insulin sensitivity, which it does it, in a just dose related context, the more artificial sweetener you consume, the more your body is craving sweet things. So you just need, you know, more uh, sweetness and more often. And so you, st it's exactly the same, same way here, the same pathway, you start eating more and more. But the interesting thing is 
you, you've probably heard of studies that showed if people have a little bit of something they like every day, they will binge less on it. I think that's a perfect correlation to this rat study. Uh, I've had clients, for example, who would say, Joe, I, 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 mean, this, I just remember this person like it was yesterday. She said, I need to have one piece of dark chocolate every day. Like, if you let me have that, I can do this. And I said, well, clearly, I'm not going to say no. I mean, just like I said, the, the tenant of flexible dieting is to be able to do those things. So there are some people who might feel like they don't have the willpower to not binge on something after that. But studies show those people who have more of that internal, moralized decision-making compass, if they let themselves have it, there's never that scarcity moment. And therefore, they can have a consistent small amount of sugar without activating this enhanced physiological addiction model. So I hope that makes sense. I'm, I'm getting a little wordy there. Uh, but let me let me get back into how this this overlay was kind of confirmed briefly. Rats given daily intermittent access to sugar uh, and non-purified diets escalate their sugar intake. Um, you know, during the first hour of daily access, which is what we define as a binge, something I mentioned earlier. And then the sugar binging rats showed signs of opiate-like withdrawal, uh, especially. So this is something I skipped. I, I think I, I I missed this on one of the previous slides. That uh, if you know, let's see, I'm gonna. Somebody is, uh, somebody is not, I can't see everybody. So if you guys want to check quick and make sure you're, you're, I think, I think I got her. Um, all right. So the, um, the interesting thing that, that has to be mentioned is that once they had these rats in an addictive state, these changes were something they could see in their brain, especially with an fMRI. Uh, and so they could say, okay, we now have this opiate type scenario. They could use the anti-addiction drug that you would normally be only used for opiates, uh, naloxone. And they, they were able to show that uh, there was, there was uh, an antagonistic effect. So again, these, these same withdrawal symptoms that you would see, chattering, I like the, the way they say four paw instead of like hand, uh, head shakes and so forth, uh, th they were able to use this opiate antagonist and, and have the same impact as if they were addicted to cocaine. So you again, you probably heard just in pop culture, pop diet culture, pop psych culture, people relate sugar addiction to cocaine addiction. This is one of those massive affirmations of that in that you can literally treat food addiction in the same way and you get that same response because you're acting on those hypersensitized dopamine receptors where internally now your, your brain is just peaked in a way that you're constantly looking for, for sugar or that sugar fat combination to satisfy that that dopaminergic urge, which is, you know, always looking for reward or the anticipation of reward. And uh, this, this, I think was a huge, huge finding, even though, um, you know, it, it's, it's almost not what we're focused on because we're not going to all go get like anti addiction drugs to, to work on, on eating, but it shows how serious that can be. But again, something I mentioned earlier that, uh, that, you know, fat alone just didn't do this. And, and I think you can see why. 
it's it's just it's not the same. I, I think in some kind of evolutionary way, we we seek out sugar because it gives us instant energy impact. You know, we just don't have those same cravings to go eat fat because you just you don't necessarily find a lot of that in nature just alone. So I think that's just a long-standing evolutionary product. Okay, so uh, here's here's what they said in conclusion. We began this article with a discussion relating binge eating to obesity. Indeed, the findings with animal models that have been presented suggest binge eating of sugar and possibly fat, probably combined, may have addictive-like properties. However, sugar binging does not affect body weight. So in rats, sugar binging does not affect body weight but a combination of sweet and fat does. And that's where they resulted in, in a higher body weight. So their conclusion is that a, yes, this is an addictive, a, a physiological addictive problem. You could, you could probably start treating it like that if we wanted to, I, I'm not aware of people who do that yet. Um, but through even just your own attempts at eating better, coming down off of that sugar intake, I think anybody who has ever done this in any formal dieting knows what it's like to just feel like those cravings aren't there. Don't we all know that if we're starting a more regimented plan, whether it's kind of a pre-contest diet or something else, and we're not eating sugar all the time, that we indeed just stop having those cravings. And a lot of us may kind of point to our own self-control or we're creating better habits, but it's very interesting that you're literally changing the physiology of your brain so that your brain is not forcing you or pushing you into those cravings because the, the, the power of that physiological drive of the dopamine system, th that is more than you think. You, when you see somebody who you think has the greatest amount of discipline and they never eat bad foods and so forth, I would argue that that's a combination of the fact that they've made that an internalized value. So they don't allow themselves to binge. And since they don't allow themselves to binge, now the physiology starts mimicking that and they just don't even think about it. They, they're just not driven to do that. And when they're not driven to do that, then physiologically, you don't get all of those repercussions from the binging. So again, there are so many multifaceted scenarios and, and, and variables that impact this. But at the same time, at the very, very core, giving yourself the best chance of not having to fight your own physiology and not have literal opiate level addictive drives for food means at some point you just have to stop eating a ton of it as we're learning from this study and with other studies, don't eliminate it completely because, you know, scarcity is a huge thing. Allow yourself small amounts of what you want, when you want, and your chances of ever developing this kind of a cycle is just going to go down uh, commensurately. It, it's, it's quite amazing. So um, I guess I'll stop there. Any Anybody have any questions before? I, I guess I'll kind of get out of here and I'll refer back to some of the slides here if you guys have questions on them specifically. But uh, any, any thoughts or questions so far is just an introduction to the neurophysiology of cravings and, and how it really does become uh, an addictive pathophysiological state. Kevin, open us up. Anything that you uh, 
know from your side on just the, the pharmacology of it or things that you tell patients? Any of this surprise you? No, definitely not. And of course, I'm I'm biased and have read a lot of the literature already, and you know the you know the terminology of hyperpalatable foods and what that can insinuate um, from a behavior standpoint is just that it's the combination of the of the carb fat that is really having an issue, if you will, or having a triggering effect. But um, it's not all surprising um, with as far as the medication, the I'm drawing a blank. I'm, but you know, there is a, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the name, but it does. There is the a property of impulsivity involved in terms of the mechanic of, of blunting that for patients that may have issues with some type of emotional eating. Um, and I say that loosely because that can be quite an umbrella term, but nonetheless, the impulsivity, the trigger, where you want to call it, I, I tend to not say addiction just because there are, there is a, a difference between medical addiction and food addiction, mm-hmm. if you will. But nonetheless, the, you know, the, the symptoms are real. The triggering, the the impulsivity is there, and that's what needs controlled a little bit more in this context, a little bit more intensely than just coaching. Mm-hmm. Although that's best too, but you need some medication sometimes. Well, you know what's on the horizon as well. There are only I saw this podcast yesterday or this news segment, and from what I understood, there are only a handful of people who have received this surgery because it's it's somewhat experimental or new enough. And for drug addicts, again, when you look at something like heroin and, and heroin cocaine is 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 driving that same dopaminergic system. They, they have started planting, implanting electrodes, um, you know, in some of the brain structures, probably, you know, that we're talking about, maybe even the amygdala and, um, and these, so, so they get the sensation, almost like a pacemaker for your heart, the, the stimulus that would tell your brain, okay, we've got enough dopamine. Like we don't have to constantly be in hunt mode, like searching and, and, and trying to impulsively satisfy these cravings for whatever sugar, heroin, sh- shopping, you know, everything else you can be addicted to. And, and these, these guys who are being interviewed, they said it was just like a game changer. Like from day one, you wake up from surgery with those structures in your brain being tamped down in terms of that, that urgency. They were like, it was like, I was a different person. Like it was unbelievable. I just don't have these cravings anymore. So until we can all go just change the entire scape of our brains by having these, uh, you know, cosmetic quote unquote, you know, surgeries, elective surgeries, just for fun. Uh, th- there are medications you can systemically, if you feel you need it, anti-addictive type interventions, but at the same time, well beyond that, I mean, 90 some percent of us, it, it is a crisis of our own making. If we control those things, if we bring those foods down and we know some of the stuff. I started this whole talk by, by saying that if we just know these mechanisms, if we know the names of these structures, if we can visualize that, if we can go to a chart in a PowerPoint to say, okay, this is what's happening. Now, when, when I engage in this behavior, I know it, I can feel it. That now gives me a sense of control. If I can name it and see it and visualize it and I understand it, now I can change it. 
And so that's where I think it's really helpful. I'll go back to what you just said, Kevin, with the sugar versus sugar and fat. Again, sugar alone, you know, think of a food that's just sugar because that's the big offender. That's, that's what peaks the dopamine craving. Like I've got these little packets of Welch's or Mott's little fruit snacks over here, like 50 calories with, you know, maybe 10 or 12 little gummy bear type things. That's, you know, mostly juice. I'm sure it has some high fructose corn syrup, et cetera, but there's no fat. You know, it's not a cookie. It's not cake. I can have one of those pre-workouts or maybe I'm starving in the afternoon and I think, well, I don't want to eat a whole meal. I'm going to have dinner pretty soon. So I just have one of these things and it satisfies that quote craving for sweetness. Now I have this little positive energy balance bump in my bloodstream and I'm good. But if I reach for a cookie and then something that you said, Kevin, the hyper palatability of the sugar plus the fat, oh man, now I got to have two. Now I've got to have three. Now I've got to have six. Like that, it, it, it's so hard to binge on pure sugar, just like we saw in the rat models. Eventually it's like, okay, it's sweet, it's good, but I'm full and I'm done. Uh, so I, I have to say clinically as a coach, when I can get somebody to bring their fat intake down, as we know, we've done plenty of research reviews on fat versus carbs and keto versus higher carbs and all that. But if I can say, look, if we just keep your fat down, but we let your carbs still remain reasonable. And you know, with flexible dieting, we can include a little sugar here and there. You can have some foods that are, you know, just quote, perfectly healthy, not off the table. Those people just lose weight faster. And, and I think this is a big part of it. You really eliminate that need for cravings. You don't get into those binge cycles because the binge cycles increase your cravings, the dopamine signaling. And so I think it's just critically important as, as a tenant of your dieting to say, okay, I will allow myself anything. I, I can eat anything any day I want, but because I have these goals and I want to stay aligned with my goals, I, I, and, I, and I know that a higher carb, lower fat diet works better on, on every single level. Now that even coincides with this study with addiction and cravings. So if I really feel like I need a little something that has taste in it, a little sugar, little snack, I can do that, but I'm just going to make sure it's lower fat because when I get into that high fat, high sugar combination, uh, especially the highly palatable foods, then the dam breaks for a lot of people, you know, just on a statistical level, that's where more people are just going to binge as we saw, even with the rat study. And that's what causes the weight gain. It's not even the, the calories from the sugar the sugar is, is what opens the doorway. And then it's the higher level of fat intake that, that creates the fat gain. So go ahead, go ahead, Amanda, jump on in. Yeah. Hey, um, so I guess I, my question would just be like, for someone that is like highly, highly addicted to sweets, um, mainly chocolate, um, I mean, like, how do you get past that? Like for someone like me who is, I'm not dieting, but I'm also like, obviously I count my macros because I'm not trying to gain any weight. And I do really restrict my, like, I never eat chocolate and I love chocolate, but I never eat it because I know it's just like opening the floodgates to me. Like I, I know I have no control. Um, so I just don't eat it. Um, and so I guess what I'm getting at is like, once I go into my competition prep, um, 
I know that I won't have it then either. And then probably what usually what ends up happening is I get out of my prep. I'm like, yeah, I get to, I'm going to, I'm going to go to town on this chocolate cake or whatever, you know? And, and then it's just, you know, that's when I start to put on the weight. Um, I have had myself like here and there, like allowed myself to have something sweet, but it's very, very seldom. Usually right now, what I'm doing with my sweets is just fruits which I wasn't really doing before um, because I was on such a low, low um, carb restriction when I was in my comp prep that I wasn't even eating fruit. It was just vegetables. So like, how do you, how do you add in, you know, these things that you're quote unquote addicted to, or, you know, you have these insatiable appetite for, but not, like overdo it that's that's my main problem yeah well let me let me start with that language because you twice said you're addicted to chocolate but you don't eat it so that means you're not addicted to it otherwise you'd be eating it all day long (laughs) um so you you're afraid of becoming addicted to it you're afraid that if i eat a little bit i'll eat it all the time and i'll eat too much but you're not truly physiologically addicted that's that's an important marker So now you have the ability to say, well, just like I started eating fruit when I didn't used to, and I'm not binging on apples or bananas or oranges, maybe if I do start allowing myself a little chocolate, once it it, it could even be, you know, because again, you have a neocortex that, that can, you know, manage a lot of this as long as the physiology isn't pushing you too far. So you could say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to eat this kind of chocolate in this context. And I think that's what helps a lot of people. Like when I started telling clients, Hey, you know, when a really good time would be for something that's kind of highly palatable, it's pre-workout because you're going to use it. And so whether it's, you know, starting the whole trend of eating pop tarts before a workout or receive peanut butter cups before a workout, if you're getting ready to go squat or deadlift, you're probably not going to say, wow, that one Reese's peanut butter cup just suddenly made me eat 24 of them. Like you're going to, you're going to use it as a pre-workout. You're going to do your your training and you used it and it's over. There's kind of a big brain reset in that. So that's one context, or just like my clients who said, I just need one per day. If I have an individually wrapped doves, dark chocolate, and I know I can have that after dinner every day, I'm as happy as a clam, like just, just give me that and I'll be fine. You know, again, that was a decision she made. So objectively, cognitively, in a, in a moral psychology way, she encoded that in a value. So she made that decision one time. I am making this decision today and it's what I'm going to do. Then she let the habit kind of set itself psychologically. So, you know, I, th- I think that's a good test for you to be able to do something like that. But I would also tell you this as somebody who's probably kind of sensitive to this stuff, because I don't know, I'm just genetically a, a fat little kid in a bodybuilder's body. Um, you know, if, if I truly have one, if I have to unwrap a miniature Reese peanut butter cup, you know, go through all of that work to get one. And then I have to do that again to get two. Eventually I'm going to be like, okay, I've, I've had three or four, like that's enough. But if you give me a two pound Reese peanut butter cup and I just break off a little chunk and eat that, it's awful easy to break off another little chunk. And maybe this chunk got a little bit bigger this day. 
but there's just something about being able to define that intake and, and just that those little tiny steps of accountability uh, are helpful. So I, I would look into something like that as you're going to try like a daily dosing of something like that. Do you think that like, even just doing like, like, you know, people have like their, their cheat, they call it the cheat day where they just have like one, one thing that they allow themselves once a week would be better than to say like a daily, a small daily thing. I think so. Especially because again, you make that cognitive decision. So when we started parenting, you know, and all of a sudden we're new parents with this one child and you decide, okay, this is, this is going to define our family in this way and that way. And you start creating your kind of family culture. One of the things we did with our kids, like we never wanted to restrict them and say, no, you can't eat that. Are you kidding me? It's there's always a context like, oh, sure. You want that cookie? By the way, I noticed your vegetables still sitting on the table from lunch. Go finish that. And then you can have the cookie. And one of the things we did was, uh, you know, we had ice cream night. Um, those of you who've known me for a long time, especially through those child rearing years, like I love ice cream. One, one of the most fun, endearing connections I had with my dad, although obesity killed him. So, you know, we kind of broke that connection would be like almost every night having a bowl of ice cream. Like my dad would come home late from work, he'd eat dinner. And then it's like, he's bringing this thing to the couch, this bowl of ice cream that looks like it's this high and it's got all kinds of whipped cream and Hershey's chocolate syrup in there. And so that's one of the reasons why I became a fat little kid. Like by the time I was 12 years old, like I was, I was a fat kid. Shocking, right? When, when that's what your parents let you do and model for you, that's what I did. That's how I ate. So when we started, you know, raising our kids, we, we made fun things like that. And Amanda, I'm not sure if you're still listening. I know you had to run there. Um, that's why I think it's a great idea to say, well, this is part of my one, you know, I have one free meal a week or something like that. That's when I'll have a dessert. And so I still kind of think that way at heart. A lot of the things I do with myself, it's to limit it to those contexts. This is when I eat this food. You know, this is when I don't. So, you know, we can still volitionally make those decisions until we get to the point where it's truly an opiate level crisis addiction. You know, that's when you have to have some kind of sentient intervention, but to get away from that, to never have to deal with it. Some of these little steps we're talking about really, really help. Were you going to say something, Tiffany? Yeah. So I had a client call yesterday, like a follow-up. My client said, I go to my psychologist and I was talking to my psychologist about my macros. And I said, okay. And she said, my psychologist said I should really like double my fat for my hormonal health um, and decrease my carbs. And like, I'm sitting there on the phone and I'm so thankful that it was not a video. It was just a regular phone call. So he said, I said, <laughs> if it worked like that, we would do that. Like, you know, as nicely as I could say that without making anyone seem kind of dumb, you know, I said, do you want to eat like a bunch of oil in your food and butter toast every day? And she was like, no. And I said, well, then how are you going to consume this extra fat if we did go, went this way? If this is the direction you want to go. If you want to go more towards calories, calories in, calories out, if you want to eat less food, I said, we could adjust in that direction. But as far as hormonal health, that doesn't help you hormone hormonally. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong there. 
No, I wish this psychologist but, knew as much about physiology as he or she did in psychology because they would know that that's just not true. They just gave patently wrong advice. Right. And I said, I, I've kind of noticed that as like a mainstream media, more of like a social media thing than anything sure. else, more of like that. So I know that was 100% applicable to what we're doing right now, but I wanted to ask you about that and make sure I was right. Number one. Uh, you know, somebody like this may have even read an article that was not very scientific, but very biased, or they're just reading headlines. And, you know, since, since ketogenic dieting is still the most popular way to think, um, even professionals like that just get sucked into reading a couple of headlines and say, Oh, that must be true. I'll just dump this on a client, you know, if, if, if it's helpful. But I will circle back to where I wanted to make this applicable which is uh, <laughs> female hormones, if you will. Um, I have clients that they tell me, oh my gosh, it's it's this time of the month. Like all I want to do is eat everything in the house. And I guess kind of the way to, that I found to combat that is I'm like, have you tried the protein mug cake recipe? It takes one minute. I sent you that doc protein. Have you tried that? Like, or finding a worker around it and for some reason, like they might not listen to me for a little bit, but then like two months down the road, they're like, Hey, I did take your advice. And that did help me curb that. Or, you know, just finding some kind of workaround. Cause I find that if you have some kind of game plan, like something on paper, like we were talking about earlier, as far as mindset goes, if you have something on paper to look at, like it's so much better to like break that habit. If that makes any sense. Yeah, you know, and I have mostly female clients. I have like one guy right now. No, and and that's another place that I think a lot of people have been done a disservice with this whole concept of hormones. Matter of fact, in the Nutrition Coaching Global Mastermind, I think the next month we do is on hormones and we'll be addressing this. And I mean, when the, 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 you know, the different phases, like the luteal phase, everything is crossing, you know, inside the premenstrual cycle and progesterone and and estrogen is, is, you know, inverting and, and, doing things like this, you absolutely have extra cravings. I mean, some of that works directly in this neurotransmitter base and those are real. That's just not like made up. And so I I think the best thing for clients is, and and I do this, if you feel like it, because it's different for every woman, if you feel consistent cravings, like, you know, wow, this is, this is that day or this two day span okay, let's plan for it. Let's increase calories by 200 calories on that day. And, and let's have a pre-planned methodology. Let's say you're going to allow yourself this particular candy bar or go to Dairy Queen and get a small blizzard or something like, you know, let's, let's have a plan. And I would much rather have somebody execute something that's physiologically driven. And again, instead of being restrictive, which will then make it worse, and then we can just move on. It's a, it's a subtle decision because satisfying those cravings in that way physically, where now you're giving yourself that little bit of sugar, your dopamine system is craving, it's over. Like you fixed it. That's, that was the answer. And then you can move on. You don't have to keep working against those cravings. You don't have to binge 10 different times. It's just. Right. Yeah. I, I do my best to look for like the patterns because I look at their food logs. I'm like, okay, well, I can see a good solid two months. I can really start seeing the patterns of where it comes from. And then we start to address and like rein things in. And another thing that um, I noticed was 
when I ask somebody, what's your water intake? Like, they're like, oh, I just, I want to eat all day. Like, I want all these snacks. I want all these things. I'm like, did you drink water today? And I had one girl tell me, I've drank Diet Mountain Dew and coffee for the last three weeks. And I said, you didn't have any water? And she said, no, I don't like the taste of tap water. And I was like, well, can we do a bottle or two a day? Like, is that a thing? Can we go get a case of water on your shopping cart list? And when she started adding in water, she was like, huh, like that, like mind over matter. I'm like, you might be thirsty, like, or not thirsty, but dehydrated. You know, I can only imagine your insides are like, oh, (laughs) give me some water. And I know that's a really silly thing to think about, but I'm always like, what's your water intake? It's no, I mean, we really do overlook some of those basics sometimes. I, I probably don't ask that question enough myself. Like that's even in our new app, that's like one of the habits that as coaches, we can kind of ping our clients with, you know, did you drink enough water today? When's the last time you had some water? So we'll, we'll have to program some of those things in when we get everybody inside this app. But all right, guys, I'm going to, I'm going to stop with this. I, I will just, one of the things I skipped over is that when you're in this physiologically addicted state, and so you've been used to binging, so you, you have a lot of sugar and then you try not to, and then you have a little bit more and you're, you're using those highly palatable foods and you kind of find yourself in this cycle. Um, just having been, just, just the status of being there, these rats, I don't know if you read this through my slides, had a 23% increase of that whole frantic scene of like pressing the food bar. So these rats who know, like you, you press on this lever and you get a a treat or something. And uh, then sometimes they'll just like, they won't have the treats come out. And so a rat will go over there. They'll, they'll tap it. Oh, it didn't work. And they'll go on these other like narked out sugar fiend rats are there going, you know, just hitting it over and over again. Cause they're, they're like, like frenetically addicted. And so that's another sign of a physiological addiction because if you didn't have that status inside that dopamine system, it wouldn't drive the behavior to do that. So again, just another reason to, uh, to really pull down and do anything you can to avoid those binging episodes that really fortify you into physiologically addictive states.